This is Making It Up, a podcast where we tell you what's happening in creative culture and why it matters. I'm Sharice Poon, and my co-host is Eugene Can. We don't always have all the answers, but we try our best to reach a conclusion that adds value to the conversation. If you like this podcast, please share an episode with a friend. We really appreciate it. All right, we've finally done it. After 90 episodes, we're changing the name. We're doing what makes sense. We're changing making it up to making it up. We're eliminating confusion. This shouldn't affect your feed, but if you do share this podcast with a friend, you can stop spelling making and just tell them it's <laughs> making. I don't even know if people recognize in the first place. Maybe, maybe not. Anyway, here it goes. I do think that it's kind of funny that we are in the same city, but still doing this remotely. I missed everything you said because I was trying to untangle my headphones. But yes, we're in the same city, but we're... Oh, you, guess, you just I, guessed it. You, you guessed what I said. Yeah, I, I said... I guess we're halfway across the, I'm the just, city. I'm just predictable. Um, Where am I in relation to you right now? You are to the west of me. Like, I'm in East London and you're in West London. So I guess what I'm trying to say is that the distance between East London and West London is so great that you might as well be in Hong Kong. By public transport, it would take me an hour to get to you. I feel everything's an hour in London. That can't be accurate, but okay. But yeah, I mean, you're with your parents. I think it's interesting when you travel with your parents, you do a whole lot of things you wouldn't usually. Do people ask people where they live in London and then use it as a way to determine what type of person that is? Huh. I mean, I don't know about determining what type of person that is. When I'm in school and people talk about where they live often, it's like for practicality. Like if you need to meet up with someone or if you're working on something, it's kind of like, well, what makes sense for both of us to meet? But I'm also Got just it. not so good at like neighborhoods. So it doesn't make a difference to me when someone tells me a neighborhood. I usually just have people give me cardinal directions. Should we get into it? Yeah, let's do it. No, nope. You want to go first? No banter. Yes, I will go first. So my topic today is from a pretty long New York Times article. You usually warn me when I pick the long articles, but you didn't this time. I think I just have an underlying trust in your ability to process a decent amount of information in a small Okay, so fair warning to anyone. If there are people out there who listen to us and then go and read these articles... Fair warning, this one's a long one. It's called, Can an Art Collective Become the Disney of the Experience Economy? Which I find to be a very confusing headline. I have rephrased it to, Is Male Wolf, an art collective, doing what makes the most sense? We'll find out. This article is by Rachel Monroe for the New York Times. Just going to give a bun of, bunch of like stats about Male Wolf, which I'd never heard about before this current moment. I don't know if I'm saying it in a way that's clear, but it's meow as in the sound a cat makes, and then wolf, like the animal. Okay. Male Wolf started in 2013 with somewhere between 12 to 24 artists in Santa Fe, New Mexico. When they started, they were broke. They 
convinced each other to pool money to rent like the 900 square foot former hair salon. And that's where they would kind of hang out every week and drink and have parties and make things out of trash. And they all had other jobs, but they called themselves artists and just made stuff together. Okay. So then three years after they're kind of starting to rent this space and calling themselves an artist collective, they got invited to create an art installation in Santa Fe. They came up with this idea to make this huge pirate ship, like a life-size, gigantic, artistic pirate ship called the Do Return. And it was incredibly successful, like way beyond their expectations. And at that point, which was 2016, it was like a confluence of everything, right? So we already have heard about the experience economy, things like the Museum of Ice Cream, Refinery 29's 29 Rooms, this kind of large-scale, interactive, extremely photogenic, shareable art. Sorry, I put art in air quotes there because I don't know if I would call all of that art. It's more like nice, interesting, pretty things. Yeah. We'll get to that. We'll get to that. Um, Let me tell you a little bit more about Male Wolf so that we can be up to date because there is relevant news. So 2016, they kept getting more invitations from galleries and art institutions, museums, etc. But they weren't making any money whatsoever. In fact, they were getting more and more broke because they were like working out of pocket. And so they came up with a business plan and... The founders kind of decided instead of being this art collective that's reliant on other institutions, we're going to become an institution ourselves and we're going to become a startup. Which is like kind of the twist in this story that I guess I saw coming, but was still a bit of a wild ride. And what has happened since then is they've gotten a lot of investors. They've locked down some really big projects. They've broken ground on a 60 million flagship project in Denver. They're working on a 400-room hotel in Phoenix to launch in a couple years. And they have this, I don't know what to call it. They have a big stake in this place called Area 15, which the article opens by saying is not a mall. But the easiest way to explain it is that it is a mall. Let me read you a couple of quotes that I found interesting. A microcosm of the male wolf story as a whole. Make something to amuse your friends. Discover that it anticipates the zeitgeist, become wildly successful. After Male Wolf's most recent fundraising round concluded earlier this year, what was once a loose confederation of scrappy punks was a corporation with a nine-figure valuation. So this is really interesting. And this is the main thing that I wanted to talk about was what does it look like when people who started out as kind of pure artists making art for their own sake by accident and luck and their own hard work, discover a way to make a lot of money. Are you saying, does it change their intent? Does it change the work? Yeah. Yeah. Does it change the intent? Does it change what the work looks like? Does it change their own sense of identity as who they are? Does it change the way that we consume it? I feel like, yes. I feel the answer is yes. But the bigger question is like, well, how does it change? Well, I think it changes when, especially in their instance, when they're suddenly being bolstered and supported by outside money. Yeah. Right? That's what changes. Versus if you're an artist, let's say that you, you've been making the same type of work for 10 years and on the 11th year, suddenly 
your your artwork starts going for like millions of dollars, then I don't think things change too much. But we, it all comes down to what happens when your identity is so closely tied to your work, right? Like how many artists do you know that are commercially successful have a body of work that's quite varied? Yeah, so it's interesting. It's always very recognizable. Yeah, it's interesting because they interviewed a couple of people involved with Male Wolf and who are still involved with Male Wolf. And people are optimistic. Like, people are not extremely, like, depressed about this transformation. But they did say things like, I was an artist. And so it's, like, kind of past tense. Like, I know I was an artist and now I'm a person in a suit getting fundraising. I mean, we've talked about this with Megan, right? Like, it's making a decision to having concessions in order to live another day. I'm also curious is that sometimes when you don't have a plan around something, and I say this is like a commercial plan, right? Yeah. Then sometimes it's difficult to react and make, actually it's hard to define what is the right decision, but if you don't have a game plan in mind, then when these things come at you, you're you're kind of on your back foot because you weren't expecting it versus like, Let's say you're creating something. Let's say you create like a footwear brand and you're actually trying to be commercially viable with it. Like obviously, when you get money, this is how you're going to react and this is how you're going to behave. Versus as an artist, like you just do it because you want to do it for your own sake and you answer to one person that's yourself. Yeah, it's interesting. One of their investors has said this, Winston Fisher. He said, they went from an artist collective to a company. They had a structure and a hierarchy. I value the people who can be creative because that's the future. That's the alpha. Creative but stubborn doesn't get you very far. Creative but recognizing you can put your stuff out there without worrying about selling your soul. That's something that male wolf gets. Yeah, so I'm this guy. I mean, but he's an investor, right? But he sees it as possible. Like you can be creative and not stubbornly resistant to capitalism and like participate in that economy without compromising i don't think that's true though i think that there is a compromise if you're as successful as they are what changes is that you kind of have free reign to decide what to do and what not to do like not every person is going to be a superstar it's kind of like if you're a superstar athlete you kind of have the pick of the litter Mm. and there's going to be more than one person seeking your services i disagree because i don't think they're that successful yet because at this point in time like a lot of people have put money into them they don't they don't really have like a they haven't proved that valuation of their company and the money that's been invested in them they've kind of had these two really successful art installations one was due return the other was this physical building called the house of eternal return and it's like based off of those two projects that they've now gotten these nationwide hotels malls etc and so it really will depend like on what they do with that Mm -hmm. to see whether they're worth it and something that kind of bugs me something else that kind of bugs me besides this question of like is it art and are there artists is they say that male wolf or at least this author is saying that male wolf positions itself as authentic and genuinely complex and rich compared to experiences like the museum of ice cream say and I just personally do not find what Male Wolf is doing significantly more exciting than the Museum of Ice Cream. These things would never be successful if they never had 
the the opportunity to be shared on Instagram or yeah. social media, right? Like yeah. that's sort of where the strength of it lies. And I don't disagree with that because basically these, it's just to walk it back. Like I think these types of museums or these types of exhibitions have always kind of existed in a way. Like what are those? I forget. Like, you know, you go to carnival and it's like, yeah, like a bunch a of, hall like, of weird mirrors. Yeah. Yeah. Like something like that. But I think that, this has just been compounded and the fact people are wanting to throw money into it and invest into it. And I've seen a lot of these ideas also pop up in Asia is predicated on that. And what is the uncertainty around it is that as money pours in, is there a bubble? Is there going to be a point in time where it's saturated? Most likely, because if the money goes there, then naturally it kind of opens the floodgates in a way. But I also am curious that I, I made this this comparison, I think maybe one or two uh, podcasts ago, and it was just talking about by virtue of something being more difficult and challenging, like all the projects they're doing are almost like architectural projects in the sense that it takes several years to do. Doing a hotel takes several years, right? Yeah. So there's always going to be a barrier to entry. What does a bubble in architecture look like? And is it something that's comparable? Mm, that's interesting. I definitely think the space is getting saturated. It is so interesting what you're saying about like timelines because if it's already saturated now, what does it is look like? Is it saturated like? though? I don't think it's saturated. You don't think it's saturated? I mean, okay, so this is the thing. This is the thing. I think the experience economy, it exists because it's based off of this premise that us individuals in society, we're tired of our phones and this like, we can consume everything. Everything is at our fingertips. And so we need experiences that are given to us that are increasingly unique and out of this world and like things that we haven't experienced before and we still share it on social media right and so what yeah. the experience economy is is that capitalist entities like apple and airlines and malls etc see that and so they give us things like vr or bubble pits to sort of like gratify this thing that they see in humans where like we don't want to be on our phones anymore but we want to still do things in real life that we can share on our phones i just kind of disagree with this entire premise of like yeah. the state of humanity but i don't know if it's because it's not existing the way that people think it exists or if i'm just like resistant to this movement i don't really subscribe to the fact that it's saturated because at any given moment i don't there's none around me. I mean, I'll, I'll be I'm in Asia. Like, how many in London can you go to on any given day? But I don't look for them. But I'm the thing, sure like, I could can buy it, them. How can it be? I think, I think it's, like, not even close to saturation. I think it's actually quite new. I think the real, the okay. real challenge will be, like, okay. no different. Because them doing it independently is, like, a, like a publication. But they're also going to be commissioned by brands to do their branded events. So, that's sort of, like the the two-sided element of it where it's one is going to be branded partnerships like it's going to be more aligned with the uh refinery 29 yeah type approach and the other one might be just hey we believe like museum of ice cream theoretically is a little bit more on the editorial side it's like hey we have a per perspective on ice cream it's not like it was sponsored by baskin robbins yeah it just so happens they took it and they monetized in a way that made it its own ice cream company okay so Fine. If I subscribe, if, if, if I go ahead and agree with you based off of 
the stats in the world of like being in London and not being able to think of something that I can go to like this that is not saturated. Why am I like already bored by the idea? Hmm. I don't know if you're bored. I think you're you're dismissive of them parading themselves around as art. But I'm not okay. Yes, I'm dismissive of the art structure of this. Though I guess they're no longer saying that they are an art collective. I'm not entirely sure about that. But I'm also not very interested in the actual experiences that they are creating. And is that because of me or is it because people my age have already become sick of this thing, even when we aren't able to participate in it on a daily level? Does that make sense? I think it's just because you've never been in that demographic that enjoys sharing photos and experiences of themselves. Okay, so you think there's still like a big audience for? I mean, it, <sighs> I guess I'll use this. I've said like, this is, many is times valuation before. Real is their valuation worth it? What were you going to say that you've said many times before? Oh, I, I think I think it really comes down to what part of the pyramid does this represent? And it's like, this is easily on the bottom half of the pyramid, right? Okay. So what you're saying is that I'm just an elitist, pretentious person. No, but I'm just saying like the bottom mainstream, I think there's more people that okay. like to indulge. I'll, in, I'll own it. I think there's a, there's a reasonably large demographic of people that like to indulge in selfies and like to, like to share experiences in that capacity, right? Okay. And we've also shown that people enjoy, for the most part, following people that that engage in these experiences. Yeah. I don't want to shit on those people. Like that's not my goal here. I don't I don't wanna I don't wanna say that that's not valuable if that's how you want to spend your time. I guess the b- bone that I will pick then is positioning an experience as a complex and rich artistic experience versus being, you know, a sector of capitalism as it is right now. Someone else said it better than me in this article, by the way. Contemporary art curator Erin Joyce wrote in the online arts magazine Hyper Allergic, The problem with male wolf is that it is a supreme act of late-stage capitalism disguised through the collective's mantra of the underdog as art savior. Yeah, so I guess capitalism. Yeah, I know. Two episodes in a row, right? Erin Joyce should get together with Eugene Rabkin. And we can take down every industry with the effects of late-stage capitalism. Yeah, I guess it's the positioning of a thing. I think it's admirable, actually. I don't, I don't know if I said that. I think it's admirable that they found a way to make money, right? Especially when we've talked so much about creatives being more savvy about business and the fact that you need to be sustainable in order to make art and that you can't make, you can't make anything if you're, you don't have financial security, right? So I think it's really admirable that they found a way to pay themselves. And that's important. Um, I think... When you evolve, though, you have to own up to the way the evolution has taken you, even if it, that does mean, okay, in order to survive, this is what we become. And this is, these are the things that have been sacrificed or diluted. Part of me also thinks that since, since this whole ex- world of experience is pretty young, like I, I wouldn't by any stretch of the imagination call it a mature space. I think... All the things that maybe we we have disdain over could, in fact, expand into something that's a little bit more interesting. But I'm also thinking, like, basically, if it becomes more interesting to us, then it's basically a museum. And how easy or hard is it to do these sort of pop-up museums? Well, right now, they're going more a theme park route, as in 
it's events that you can actually ride or put a headset on or play a game of some kind. So think of it more as amusement park or like an arcade, like a really fancy arcade as opposed to a museum. I guess it's interesting to me when the work goes from having substance to it to being a gimmick. And it is tricky. I agree. It's tricky to think about, okay, what can I put in a space that has endurance that people will want to revisit and that they'll be also wowed by the first time and also isn't just like a cheap play. I think that's hard. I'm not saying I know how to make work like that. In the last Making It Up, we discussed how slacker culture is kind of this thing coming in. Yeah. Does slacker culture immediately go against mm. everything they stand for? So maybe while they think there's this space for it, it's actually maybe it's, it only has a very short, maybe that's let's say true. two year timeline. Oh man, that's true. Hey, good job. Good job putting those two subjects together, Eugene. I, I think that right now, the, the by virtue of what this is, like I think the peak of it might have actually already come. Like, let's say Museum of Ice Cream is the peak of, of what this wait, all wait, is. Wait, wait, wait. How does this go back to, like, our bubble? You said the bubble hasn't burst yet. I don't know. I'm trying to see. Because the thing is, like, the, the money could come in, but it might never actually pick up any velocity because it people won't get behind it or won't be as excited about it as, as anticipated because slacker culture has become the dominant thing. I feel like I said that, but I positioned it more as a personal preference. I do like this angle because slacker culture, to remind people, is where you don't try so hard to be performative of identity online and you don't really make those kind of efforts to like have this groomed personal branding. And these experiences kind of go hand in hand with groomed personal branding because it's not just experiences for you to be in, but experiences for you to share. So what does it mean when people aren't interested in sharing this kind of content anymore? Like, will it have value on its own that people can enjoy separately from feeling the need to post about it? As much as I'm, I propose this idea, I also think that there's sufficient size in the market that you can have a little bit of everything, right? Because like, I think the, the, the most adjacent sort of movement around Slacker culture was normcore in terms of fashion, just like mm -hmm. super plain stuff. But that hasn't stopped what is now the current sort of movement around menswear, right? Yeah. So I think there's room for everything. I'm just saying that maybe the actual velocity that, that's anticipated with all the money coming in may never actually be achieved. Like it might just that's underperform. True. That's true. That's true. And it's, it's unfortunate that like architectural things like this take loads amount of money to begin with that you might not see yeah. back very soon. I would go if I was in Vegas or Phoenix or Washington, which is where they're going to have a couple of projects in the next couple of years. I would go yeah. out of curiosity. Yeah. How do you value that experience? Oh, it really depends on the price point. That's what I'm asking you. Like, it, do you look at it from a, oh, it's a half an hour thing. So the most I would spend for anything my curiosity, is $100 an hour. My curiosity was peaked. I don't know if you remember earlier when I introduced this, they're working on a 400 room hotel in Phoenix. And that reminded me of the whole Muji thing, but this is like the other end of the spectrum because I anticipate that this is going to be extremely over the top in some ways or that their offerings will be intentionally quirky as opposed to trying to satisfy your needs as a hotel guest in terms of like luxury and comfort as best as they can. 
Like it's going to offer something different in terms of like entertainment and interest. So that's compelling to me. Depending on the price point, I would stay in that hotel. Because I think it would be different. My anticipation is that it would be different. Whereas like if I went to one of their mall installations or exhibitions, I kind of feel like I know what I'd be getting and I would just go to see if I'm right. <laughs> I would say that in general, most of the things that we probably are interested in don't have as much of a commercial angle to it. I worry that this podcast has now just become the two of us like shitting on things. Uh, I don't think it's that. Okay. I think it's being critical. I would go by virtue of understanding because I always find it interesting to go to things and I probably should do it more for certain creative mediums. You should like have gone to the musical today with your family, Eugene. No, I'm not going to go to the Les Mis. <laughs> um, but just like understanding like if something's really popular, really big, like just understanding why. Yeah. Because I think if you ever want to be... Yeah. <sighs> relevant is the wrong word. If you ever want to understand why culture works the way it does, then you kind of need to go and embark on certain experiences that are at the very pinnacle of popular culture. Yeah. I, I'm thinking back about that. Uh, b- before you say anything, I, I, I need to preface that. Like, I think that I'm actually really bad. I've gotten better. I've, I've gone, I've, for a time, I was really bad at simply dismissing things without experiencing them. So I think that's not a good thing either. I'm thinking back about my words and I, I want to be careful because I do think a lot of the criticism I said do come from personal preference. I think what I would offer as hopefully more objective criticism is this suggestion that making large physical exhibitions can be more engaging and complex and thoughtful is not necessarily true like i don't think something has to be big and flashy in order to therefore be more engaging and have depth and i feel like meow wolf kind of equates those two like i think something can be quiet and not big and not be a room and offer something to a user or an audience member that is interesting as well i think that's it for me yeah Should we move on? Yeah. So my topic today is relatively complex, but I've kind of broken off a chunk of it. So Mozilla, who are the creators behind stuff like Thunderbird, the email app. I don't know why I led with Thunderbird. I don't know why you didn't lead with Firefox. <laughs> Firefox. Because <laughs> I have been. I don't use Firefox, but I was kind of messing around with Thunderbird. Thunderbird is actually not very good. It's overly technical for an email. Firefox is pretty um, good, but this is not the point of your subject at all. Yes. Anyways, so Mozilla created, and I'm quoting them, a hashtag internet health report. And what they did was they just looked at a bunch of different topics within the realm of the digital world, decentralization, privacy, advertisement slash sort of revenue streams, as well as the power of cities. And I found the power of cities really interesting because typically you don't equate the internet with a city in the most traditional sense, right? Mm-hmm. You, you, everything else I mentioned, I think you would equate with. But what's interesting is that for better or worse, by, by 2050, 
68% of the world will live in cities. So they command quite a bit of power in regards to making decisions. And this was also something that came up because I've spent some time in smaller towns over the last you know month or so, whether it was in Korea and then just recently in Whitstable, uh, which is a, like an hour, hour and a half out of London. I think one thing you recognize is like the migration of people and or just the inability for small towns to attract talent. A lot of the commercial businesses I would walk past all had signs for looking for help. That's really interesting. Right? Part-time, full-time. And I think that that's indicative of a lot of different things because you're going to have two simultaneous problems happen uh, in the sense that first and foremost, obviously big cities need to handle more people, but small cities need to know how to service and how to provide support towards people that don't have the same sort of economies of scale. Like if you live in a small town, like things are going to be more expensive. You're going to have less, less access to stuff, transportation, et cetera. And these are things that I think both sides need to be aware of. I mean, in Japan, it's it's quite well known, the reduction in population. And a lot of these small towns are being not abandoned, but they're, they're definitely not growing, right? They're definitely... Can you tell me uh, more res- about the receding. tech angle in cities as opposed to a rumination on the cities that you have been to? Yeah, sorry, I got, I got, I got a little bit sidetracked there. But from a perspectives angle, a lot of these cities maintain a lot of power and they need to be aware of their digital rights. And an example of that would be, uh, so in New York City, when the Amazon Kindle first dropped, their eBooks didn't work well with screen readers, which made it difficult for the blind community to read books. And and the National Federation of the Blind pushed Amazon to make changes to ensure that there'd be accessibility for the blind. So that's an example of pushback from a big city to ensure that, hey, you As know in what? It was people in New York that led the charge. Yes. Okay, just checking because yeah. the National Federation is yeah. national. Okay. Good catch. Furthermore, there's this lady by the name of... Furthermore, there's this person by the name of Megan McDermott, and she's a creator behind the New York City Internet Health Report, and says that there's part of us that really needs to nurture a population's relationship with tech and our rights. And she says, the core of the digital rights agenda is to reframe how we think about and deploy technology in cities. The idea is to recapture the dignity and purpose of technology as a public good. And I really, like, I think that's really important because we've for the most part, allowed tech to come in on the basis of convenience to change things. And now we're kind of realizing, oh, we gave them way too much power and we weren't, it could be scooters. It could be bringing down our guard against privacy, all these things, right? As they talk more about the tech angle, it's actually overly basic in my opinion. They talk about smart cities could mean, hey, every trash can has a sensor to notify the city when it's full. So someone comes and changes, you know, the trash can. Or it could be notifying people of free parking spaces. Free as in like open. I think that's overly simplistic. Some people are arguing that why would you need a sensor when you can just like look at the population and the foot traffic and just use that as a model. That's true. Right? You don't need to go that crazy. Ultimately, the reason why I thought a lot of this fell flat and maybe it was a word count issue or whatever. I think technology and cities has such an interesting role that they can play together. We need to be very aware of how it can work for us. And also ensure that the companies that are going to provide those services, whether it's public or private, are looking out for our best interests. If you look at most tech companies that have grown massively large in the last 10 to 20 years, a lot of them have had just free reign to go in and create the business they want to create. 
and there hasn't been a lot of value to stakeholders well, like you know there's been a uh, lot of argument from cities that tech companies being in them is necessarily good for the city and i think what we're seeing now is that's not necessarily true so cities yeah. have made a lot of concessions in the past whether it's in terms of taxes or property or just letting them use city people as guinea pigs in order to keep those companies around for their economic value but I think it would be interesting to see increasing amounts of pushback saying like, hey, what you're doing for this city is not very good or is um, could be better. And if you don't yeah. follow certain rules or guidelines, like we don't really want you here. Yeah. Like the one thing that I've found most fascinating being in London the last few days is the ease in getting around. And transportation is obviously a big issue in a lot of large cities because of Everything from traffic jams to accessibility. Uh, what does it mean when Uber comes in? But, you know, using City Mapper, which is this app that helps track multiple ways of getting to your destination. Oh, I didn't even like tell you. Been... Original shout out for City Mapper goes to Alec Rose. He told me to download that before I moved here. Yeah, like it's actually amazing because it actually takes a lot of stress out of commuting because you can easily set up your schedule and your time of arrival to ensure that you're you're not necessarily you know rushing you know hey you know what if this is a five minute walk uh to get to the station but the next train doesn't come for 20 minutes then maybe i don't need to leave for another 10 minutes right like it's been so easy for me to to kind of um take that approach and and this is another thing too is that they launched a service called what was it it was like i don't know it's one of the built-in services where it's not quite Uber, but it's like a bus with predetermined stops. I don't know if you've seen that within the City Mapper app. It's their own. Oh uh, yeah, I haven't because for you because you're traveling in a party of six, that makes a lot of sense. But for me, because I'm a, usually a single commuter, I've never actually really looked no. Into that. It's like a five pound ride to go anywhere, but there's just predetermined oh. stops. So it what it does, it's like in Hong Kong they have these things called mini buses that follow a predetermined route. And basically, you can get off at any stop. And some of them are up to your discretion. Others have assigned stops, but it's along those lines. And I think it's just interesting because they're both fast and efficient. And they're a hybrid between a taxi, which is in, in many ways not very efficient because, you know, it might be a, it, there might be seats for five people, but there's only one person sitting there, right? But this is kind of like a predetermined route. So that's one example. But I think that even then, maybe the, the, the thing that will change around the city living is maybe companies becoming more decentralized and us being more open to working yeah. anywhere. Yeah, I mean, that first stat, by 2050, 68% of the world will live in cities. I really wonder about the density of the cities that are described in that statistic, because I suspect they're not dense the way Manhattan or Hong Kong are dense, but dense the way Los Angeles is. Yeah. By which I mean very spread out. It seems as though we've reached a tipping point where some big cities have now actually done themselves in in a way that not not that they were ever making themselves to be the place you need to live, but I think whether it's high rent, whether it's the fact that other places have been able to attract talent or interesting movements mm -hmm. that I no longer need to live in New York to do mm -hmm. interesting things, mm -hmm. right? I could live in Austin, I could mm -hmm. live in I mean, you know, a smaller city, anecdotally, a smaller town. which I feel like we have talked about before. I forget which episode. 
both you and I know of friends who have moved away from big cities to smaller cities to places that are not cities. And they find that better for themselves personally. And so it's like probably part of a larger movement. Yeah, but what's interesting, I don't think we really mentioned this. What's also interesting is that when tech companies use cities as experiments and then apply that widely, I think that's quite that's not really a sustainable practice because like what works in New York doesn't not necessarily work in LA or London, wherever the tech company uh, originally is. But, but I think to that point that it's not always the testing ground. I think they usually pick a mid-sized city oh, okay. for the testing. Yeah. I only know this because like when they test new fast food, they don't test it in big markets. They test it in like Akron, Ohio or something. By virtue of us recognizing that tech is not a thing to be openly invited into our world anymore, it, it's setting us up for hopefully better experiences down the line where there's more awareness around what role it should play and shouldn't play. I mean, when you talked about City Mapper, I, I don't know the history of this, but I wonder how they managed to get all of the buses tracked so well. One thing that's really helpful within City Mapper is your ability to just see the time of the bus because there's this little like Wi-Fi symbol and it shows you, oh, this bus will arrive in four minutes, three minutes. And it's just, honestly, it's been, it's been so easy to travel and navigate the city with that. And even though there might be three switches along the way to get to your destination, it's done in a way where it's so straightforward that you don't actually feel that stressed out. You're just like following directions. Right, you're not really having to decipher any code or anything. Mm -hmm. It's just very mm -hmm. simple. Mozilla, I think, does a good job though with the Internet Health Report, even if there are problems with maybe this covering all the bases. I obviously they have a stake in it too, as an internet company. So what can I say? But at least they release a report. At least they have that. Yeah, we didn't talk about it, but they have ones like on web literacy, on decentralization. I, I, I would like to read more of it. I think. Yeah. My, I, my last thought to, to kind of round things off is immediately, what do you think is a place that a digital company or digital service could come in and fix in terms of your day-to-day -day city living life? You know those food box companies where they deliver food to your doorstep? Mm -hmm. So there's a big problem with those and uh, packaging. And I don't know what the solution is, but I would like to get a food delivery service that fixes the packaging problem. Or maybe it's a food delivery pickup. Like I would kind of like to be saved the hassle of going to the grocery store especially because sometimes grocery stores close earlier, like in London, they, well, the ones near me, they close at like five on Sundays. So the convenience of like picking up my groceries, but not having the packaging and having it like on a scheduled basis, I think that problem is not properly solved yet. Could be. Um, oh, and also we've talked about this before in another episode, the sharing of secondhand goods. Yeah, I think finding a way to match users that, need certain things in a, a bigger city landscape would be helpful and i'm not sure how it would work per se like because what i'm trying to what i'm 
leaning towards is actually something that's less around fashion, but maybe it's more functional things. Like you were, you said this too, Charisse, uh, I, I met her for a drink the other day and she's like, hey, does do one of you guys have an extra <laughs> set of Tupperware? And it made sense because like everyone has like extra Tupperware kicking around. Like there's no need for me to go out and buy that. Yeah. But yeah, exactly that. By the way, um, resolution on the Tupperware story is I took one from school that I'd seen lying around in the kitchen for a long time. So, I mean, someone obviously left it there, but whoever left it there doesn't apparently need it. So I found one. Um, but if anyone is London-based and would like to meet me up. Donate. For yeah. some Tupperware, that'd be great too. Okay, you want to do some housekeeping? Sure. So we met up. That was exciting. We met up in actual real life with, um, should I just say full names? I guess that's fine. Yeah. Yeah, so we met up in real life with Daniel Bailey, Seth Foot Ring. Also a friend you met at the Good Hood store. And it was kind of impromptu, but really great. I don't know why yeah, I say that cool. with surprise. I, I expected it to be good, but. I mean, I, I'm, I'll i do this to toot our own horn, but usually when we have like these meetups, I think the, whether it's planned or impromptu, like the quality of conversation is always pretty high. It's always it's always like fun. You're, like you're you're talking to people that have a different perspective. No one is necessarily cut from the same same cookie cutter, right? Everyone has different interests, but you're unified by one thing, and that's where you kind of have this opportunity to interact. So it'd be like, for example, um, Daniel, who's really big into footwear design, right? He'll be talking about how the the world of sustainable footwear is shaping up, right? And no, none of us would have access to that because we don't necessarily work in that industry. Yeah. But it has relevance because we're, for example, into sneakers. Yeah. So stuff like that is really cool. All right. That's a good place to cap things off for the day. If you are interested in hearing more about Macon, reading and listening to some of our stories focused on the sights and sounds of native culture, you can visit us at Macon.com, M-A-E-K-A-N.com. You can also subscribe to us through your favorite podcast admin platforms. If you like this podcast, you can do us a huge favor by reviewing us on iTunes or sharing this podcast with a friend. Also, if you want to get in touch with us, you can email myself at sharice at makin.com, C-H-A-R-I-S, or Eugene at makin.com, E-U-G-E-N-E. But the most direct way to get in touch is to DM us on Instagram at makin. We love hearing from you. I'm Eugene. I'm Sharice. And this is Making It Up. And this is making it up. <laughs> I don't know. It all sounds the same. Oh my gosh. Amazing. Okay.